Father, we're so grateful that You have given us the Scripture, that the things that have been recorded for us in the past have been written down for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come, that we might not crave the evil things that they also crave. We're reminded in that passage that we just heard read to us that You're a God of justice and judgment. That those who sow to the flesh will reap according to the flesh. Those who indulge in sin will reap judgment. There are consequences to our rebellion. Just as 23,000 fell in one day for their immorality, and just as many of them were destroyed by the serpents and by the destroyer for testing God and, and grumbling against God, so even today, Father, You're a God of judgment. And this time in our nation demonstrates that perhaps better than any time in our nation. As we look at around at a, at a virus going around and the reaction to the virus, we look at the uh, state of politics, the state of our country, the state of our world, and it's just a reminder that you are a God of judgment. You give people over to their own depravity. You pour out cataclysmic acts of judgment upon them. And yet you're a merciful God. You do not consume us as we deserve. We ought to be consumed in the fury of your everlasting wrath the moment we rebel against you. And yet you're patient and long-suffering, and with one hand you're holding back your wrath, with the other hand you're bidding the sinner to come to Christ that we might find life in Him. And we're so grateful that the saving grace of God has been communicated to us through Jesus Christ, through the work of our Savior. And now as Christians, those who have been saved from God's wrath, those who have come into union with Christ, it is our desire to do all that we do for His glory. It is our desire to lay aside our liberties and our freedoms in Christ, so that we might become all things to all men, so that we might by any means win them to Christ. And so we pray that You would help us to do that as a church. Help us to be a people who are about the Master's business, about the Kingdom of God, focused on biblical Kingdom priorities, and that we would seek to love our neighbor and communicate the truth to him. May we be a people that give no unnecessary offense, place no unnecessary stumbling block before others, but a people who live all of our life to the glory of God. And now as we come and open up the Scripture and we go deep in the Word of God here in 1 John chapter 2, it is our desire that we would have a deep understanding of the truths that are before us this morning, that we would see Your glory in the Scripture, that You would teach us Your will, that You would help us to know what You would have us to do in response to these truths, that we might live in a way that is pleasing to You. So Lord, please may that take place in our lives today and forever, Lord, as we seek to live for you throughout all eternity. So be with us now, we pray. Amen. Alright, if you have your Bibles, we're going to yet again be in 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. And we'll continue to work our way verse by verse through John's letter. And this morning we come to verses 24 through 28. 1 John chapter 2, verses 24 through 28. And I hope this study has been as rich for you as it has been for me. It's such a joy to spend hours every week digging into the Word of God and then trying not to overwhelm you on the Lord's Day, trying to keep it under an hour and a half. So that's what I try to do. But I hope this has been an edifying journey for you so far. What John has said thus far, he's just going to continue to say over and over again. I told you this is a repetitive book, a cyclical book. 
John just keeps circling around to the same truths as if to teach us by way of repetition. Uh, We've basically got his message, but he's going to continue to expound on that message with greater clarity and greater depth. There are basically three things that John has to say in this letter. Three things. All of which constitute a test. A test by which we can measure the validity of our faith. A test by which we can determine if we are saved or not. And those three things that John has to say over and over again are that true Christians obey the truth or believe the truth doctrinally, they obey the truth morally, and they love in truth socially. So there is a doctrinal test, a moral test, and a social test. The validity of your salvation is determined by what you believe doctrinally, how you live morally, and how you love relationally. Those are the tests of genuine salvation. And I told you last week that uh, cycle one of those three tests started in chapter 1, verse 1, and ran all the way to chapter 2, verse 17. And now, with verse 18, John begins to recycle through those tests again. This is the second round. So if you didn't get it the first time, buckle up. John's coming yet again with the same truths. And again, again, he's going to begin where you have to begin. He's going to begin with the doctrinal test, the Christological test, uh, the proper view of Christ. That is the fundamental definition of a true Christian. He is a person who believes in and follows after the true and biblical Jesus. John begins with the doctrinal test. And in verses 18 to 23 last week, he exposed the Antichrist. But now in verses 24 to 28... He shifts from Antichrist to Christians. He shifts from the Antichrist to the believer's response to the Antichrist. Let's read this passage together. 1 John 2, starting in verse 24. John writes, As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. This is the promise which He Himself made to us, eternal life. These things I've written to you concerning those who were trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing which you received from Him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as His anointing teaches you about all things, and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in Him. Now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from Him in shame at His coming. So as you know, over the last couple of weeks, we've considered some of the features of Antichrist. John defined them for us. Uh, we saw four features. We saw the timing of Antichrist, the last hour. Now, they exist now. We saw the defection of Antichrist. Don't they have uh, the Christ, Christ Antichrist? Right, Antichrist is anyone opposed to Christ, right? Anyone against Christ. Yeah, exactly. So the timing of Antichrist is now. The defection of Antichrist is that they start in the church and then leave the church and seek to deceive the faithful. We saw the help against Antichrist, namely the Holy Spirit who teaches us the truth, and as Big John pointed out, we saw the definition of Antichrist, namely anyone who is against and opposed to the true Christ. Anyone who rejects the truth about Jesus is an Antichrist. That means anyone who denies His deity, anyone who denies His humanity, anyone who denies the incarnation, the truth of Christmas, that Jesus is the God-man, anyone who denies that 
is an anti-Christ. But now, in verses 24 to 28, John's focus shifts from anti-Christ to the Christian's response. How do we respond when false teachers, when deceivers, when they come, they knock on our door and they try to sell and repackage a different Jesus to us? How do we respond? The answer is, we must abide in Christ. We must abide in Christ. That's the key word, the word abide. It's the word meno. It's one of John's favorite words. He uses it 23 times in the book of 1 John alone. And he uses it six times in these five verses, in verses 24 to 28. The word means to stay, to remain, to continue. It has the idea of perseverance. It's a word that describes our response to the Antichrist as well as our response to the true Christ. We must remain in Him. The word is obviously used in a plethora of Scriptures, way too many for me to trace out for you now. But the most significant parallel to 1 John is Gospel of John, John chapter 15. In fact, you can turn there with me for a moment to John chapter 15. And I'll read to you verses 1 through 11. And here in John 15, Jesus uses this word abide to teach us about our relationship with Himself. The word obviously carries the ideas of communion, the idea of union, the idea of perseverance. You see, to be a Christian is to be in a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. It is to be in fellowship with Him. And the evidence that we're in that fellowship is we continue in that fellowship because as we saw last time, if you leave that fellowship, you were never there in that fellowship to begin with. So Jesus uses this word abide to teach us about our relationship with Himself. So look at verse 1. Verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. So here Jesus is using an agricultural analogy an analogy that would have been very familiar to his hearers in first century Palestine. And he compares himself to the vine. What is a vine? A vine is a long thing that has branches on it, that has fruit on it. That's what a vine is, right? That's, that's your technical definition. Yeah, it can, often grows up buildings, and yep. you can get yep. grapes off of it, fruit off of it. So it is uh, something you find outside that grows fruit on it. That's a vine. And then he compares the father to the vine dresser. What's a vine dresser? It's the gardener, essentially. It's the one who walks around and takes care of the vine. He's the one that cares for it and assures maximum fruitfulness. Maximum fruitfulness. And how does he do that? Look at verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. That's what a gardener does. The gardener cares for the vine. He cuts away the dead branches that choke out the fruitfulness of the vine. And then he cuts anything off the good branches that would hinder its fruitfulness. That's what he does. Now how does the Father do that? How does the Father do that in our lives? The answer is, He does it through trials, through difficulties, through discipline, and through the Word. Through discipline and through the Word. You see, this is the word kathairo. Uh, the word for uh, prune here means to cleanse by pruning. It would, the, the, the gardener would take his knife and cut and cut to assure fruitfulness. And God does that in our life. You see, we are disciplined, Hebrews says, for our good that we might share His holiness. 
And the psalmist said, it's good that I was afflicted because before that I went astray, but now I keep your law. God even uses difficulties in our life to make us fruitful. So He uses discipline, but He also uses His Word. Look at verse 3. Verse 3. You are already clean because of the Word which I have spoken to you. That's the same word, the word kathairo there. You're pruned, you're cleansed because of the Word that I've spoken to you. God uses His Word as the knife that cuts the wickedness of our hearts away and prunes us and cleanses us and makes us holy. Now in verse 4, Jesus starts to use this word abide. Look at verse 4. Abide in Me, and I in you. Continue in Me. Remain in Me. Go on in Me. Continue in an intimate communion with Me. Why? Because as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in Me. Have you ever seen a branch cut off of a tree that grows leaves? No, it doesn't work that way. For the branch to be fruitful, it has to be connected to the source of life and growth and sustenance. Jesus is that source. He's the vine. He's the source of life. So only those in Him can bear fruit. The fruit of righteousness, the fruit of righteous attitudes, righteous conduct, righteous behavior, all of that results from union with Jesus Christ. That means the only way you can be fruitful, the only way you can be godly, the only way you can live a life that is pleasing to God is to be in communion with Jesus Christ. There is no fruit outside of Him. Apart from Me, you can do nothing. Then in verse 5, He has this, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in Me and I in Him, He bears much fruit. For apart from Me, you can do nothing. Apart from Me, you can do nothing. So the first thing we learn in John 15 about abiding in Christ is that abiding produces fruitfulness. Abiding produces fruitfulness. But there's a second thing. It produces assurance. Look at verse 6. If anyone does not abide in Me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. What happens to those who don't abide in Christ? They're burned. They go to hell. Burned. You go to hell. You're consigned to eternal hell. Those who do not continue in Christ, who do not hold fast to Christ, are going to be cast into the lake of fire. Which means that if you do abide in Christ, you can have confidence that you're not going to hell. Because Christ is a sufficient Savior. Now look at verse 7. If you abide in Me, and My words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. If you continue in Christ, if you go on in Christ, if the truth about Christ and His Word continues in your heart, then you can be confident even in prayer. You'll have a fruitful prayer life. Verse 8, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be My disciples. How do you know you're a true disciple of Christ? How do you know you're a true Christian? How do you know you're really saved? Because you bear much fruit. And how do you bear fruit? You abide in Christ. Exactly. So abiding in Christ produces assurance of salvation. But there's a third thing here. It also produces loving obedience. Look at verses 9 and 10. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in 
in His love. To abide in Christ is to continue loving Him, and true love for Him demonstrates itself in obedience to Him. So those who abide in Christ are marked by loving obedience. And there's one more thing Jesus says abiding in Him produces, and that's joy. Joy. Look at verse 11. These things I have spoken to you, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. Jesus said all of this about abiding in Him, because it is by abiding in Him that we find true and lasting joy. The world has nothing to offer God's people. Christ is where we find true, lasting joy. So those who abide in Christ bear fruit. They obey God. They love God. They have assurance of their salvation. And all of that produces deep-seated gladness in their hearts. Deep joy. So all that John, back to 1 John 2 now, all that John's going to say about abiding in Christ, he got it from his Lord himself. John's not inventing things. John's not making this up. John learned all of this from Christ himself. And now, he simply reinforces those same truths. Here's the issue. There are a plethora of antichrists. Christ deniers. Christ rejectors. Those who purvey Christological errors all around us. And they seek to deceive us. I've told you this story before. Maybe for you, you think, you know, there's no way. I mean, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going to be deceived. But I had a man in our family who was a dear friend of the family. And uh, he became a Jehovah's Witness because he married a Jehovah's Witness. That's exactly what happens, right? It's easy to be deceived. These antichrists are everywhere. And they're looking to devour you. And John loved his flock and he warned about them. So there's many antichrists. They're trying to deceive us. And what is our response? Our response must be to abide in Christ. We must continue in Christ. But what does that even mean? What does it mean to abide in Christ? How do we abide in Christ? Why do we need to abide in Christ? What's the result of abiding in Christ? What's the motive for abiding in Christ? John's going to answer those questions this morning by presenting four aspects of abiding. Four aspects. We'll look at the first few this morning, and we'll look at the rest of them uh, next time. So first of all, the first aspect of abiding that John highlights here is the call. We see the call for abiding. Look at verse 24. 1 John 2, verse 24. As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. John says, as for you. As for you. In contrast to the Antichrist who deny Christ, who defect from Christ, who leave Christ and depart from the true church, as for you, you must continue in Christ. You must remain in Him. You must, as we sung a moment ago, hold fast to Him because He holds fast to you. We must abide in Christ. He says, let that abide in you. Again, that word meno, to continue to remain, uh, to hold fast. And what is it that we are to let continue in us? What is that? What does that refer to? He says, let that continue in you, which you heard from the beginning. What is it we've heard from the beginning? It's the truth. It's the truth. The truth about Christ. The truth about the Gospel. The truth about the person and work of Jesus. 
The truth that He's fully God and fully man. The truth that He became a human being through the virgin birth. He lived a sinless life. He died a substitutionary death in our place. He bore the wrath of God. He rose again from the dead. And salvation is by faith alone, in Him alone. That is the truth that we've heard from the beginning. What does the beginning refer to? The beginning. Obviously, the Gospel truth began at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus in one way. He proclaimed it. The apostles proclaimed it. It began even beyond that. If you go all the way back to the Old Testament, you can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and read the first promise about Christ, the proto-euangelion, the first gospel, the seed of the woman coming to crush the head of the serpent. You can go even beyond that. You can go all the way back to eternity, and God has promised and He has predicted and He has determined the gospel from everlasting. It's the plan of God from eternity. But for us, this is the truth we heard at the beginning of our Christian life. At the beginning of conversion. At the moment of salvation. What happens at salvation? We hear the gospel truth, right? We hear the gospel truth about Christ. And the Spirit of God regenerates our hearts. He opens our blinded eyes to the glory of Christ. He draws us and gives us the gift of faith and effectually teaches us the truth about the person of Jesus. At conversion, we hear that truth and are taught that truth. And now John says, you just need to continue in that which you've had from the beginning. The heretics have come with their new truth. By the way, anytime truth is new, it's not true. Truth is from antiquity. Truth is God's truth, and God's truth originated in His own heart from eternity. The seed of all gospel truth is in the Old Testament. The full revelation of it is in the New Testament, proclaimed by Jesus and the apostles. Anyone who comes with new truth, reject it. They are liars. New truth is old heresy repackaged again. So John says, just continue in that which you've heard from the beginning. What is the truth that John wants us to believe? What is this truth about Jesus? Who is Jesus according to John? We've talked about this before, but we'll do it again. That's right. We can go home now. Big John, settle it for us. He's God, right? Stole my thunder, Big John. Go to chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to consider again what John has to say about this Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 1. John says, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the Word of life. Jesus is that which is from the beginning. He is the eternal Word. He is the eternal God. Big John had it right. Jesus is God. Look at verse 2. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. So what do we learn about Christ from these two verses? We learn that He's the eternal God who was made flesh. Right? John 1.1 He's the truth too. He's the truth, right? He's the truth. He's the true God and He became a human being via the Incarnation, which is what we celebrate at Christmas. Jesus is the God-Man. He's God incarnate. God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. This is the true and biblical Jesus. We go to chapter 2. Back to chapter 2, verse 22. Chapter 2, verse 22. John continues to define who Christ is. 
Here he does it negatively. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. That, of course, implies that Jesus is the Christ because the liar denies that. Jesus is the Christ, the Christos, the Messiah, the Anointed One. He's the one that God chose to be the prophet, priest, and king and savior of His people. And true believers acknowledge that. We must believe that Jesus is the Christ. I go to chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 1. Chapter 5, verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. So you've got to believe He's the Christ. Now go to verse 5. Verse 5, Who is the one who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So we must believe He's the Son of God. What does that mean? It doesn't mean what the Jehovah's Witnesses tell you mean. Tell you it means. It doesn't mean that He's the firstborn creature of God. It means that Jesus eternally existed with God as God. It means that He shares the nature of God. He's one in essence with God. He is the Son of God in the sense that He's equal with God because He is Himself God. Then you go to chapter 4, verse 2. Just one page to the left. Chapter 4, verse 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So we must confess the reality of His flesh, the reality of the incarnation, the reality that He is the God-man. This is the biblical Jesus. Anyone who denies that, anyone who rejects that, is not a Christian. If you fail this test, you're not a believer. If you fail this test, you do not belong to God. The true Christian acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the Jesus that John preached. This is the Jesus that the Bible sets forth for us. And this is the truth about Jesus that we must abide in. We must remain in. So back to chapter 2 now. That's the call for abiding. John says, look, you've heard the truth about Jesus. You've had it ever since the beginning of your conversion. The heretics have come. They've redefined Christ. They're wrong. You've got it right. Continue in the truth that you've had ever since the beginning. So what are you going to do when the Jehovah's Witness knocks on your door? You're going to hold fast to the truth that you've had from the beginning. What do you do when the Mormon missionaries ride their bicycles down the street and say, hey, we got, we got some New Testament, a new a revelation about Jesus? You're going to say, no, you don't. We've had the truth from the beginning. What are you going to do when the Muslim says we worship the same God? You're going to say, no, we don't. We've had the truth about Christ from the beginning, and we're going to continue. You walk away. In that truth. There you go. Walk away. Tell them the truth, then walk away, right? <laughs> After you tell them the truth, they'll walk away. You walk away. <laughs> All right. That's the call for abiding. But now, secondly, notice the reasons for abiding. The reasons. Why should we abide in Christ? He's yeah. the only one we we, we got to believe in love. That's true. He's the only one. There the you only go. one, yeah. Well, John gives us three reasons here. Three reasons. One in verse 24, one in verse 25, and then a third and final one in verse 28. We'll look at the first two this morning. Look at verse 24. As for you, let that abide in you which you've heard from the beginning. Why? Here's why. Because if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. If the truth about Christ, the true message about who Jesus is, continues in you, if you continue to believe the truth about Christ, then you abide in God. You abide in God. I told you last week, this is a package deal. If you reject Christ, you don't have God. If you reject the Son, you don't have the Father. 
Verse 22, John says this, The Antichrist is the one who denies the Father and the Son. Verse 23 says, Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. Friends, if you reject the truth about Jesus, you do not have God. But if you accept the truth about Jesus, you have both the Father and the Son. It is as simple as that. What you say about Christ is essential. Look, it's, it's all about Christ. It's all about Christ. Jesus is everything. If you get Jesus wrong, it doesn't matter where you're right. You're damned. If you get Jesus wrong, you can get everything else seemingly right, and it doesn't matter. You've got the most important thing wrong. To get Jesus right, you have to believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity. What's the doctrine of the Trinity? We're going through that in Sunday school in our confession. Now, I would encourage you to be here for that if you can. It's a rich, rich study. But the doctrine of the Trinity asserts this. There is one God who exists as one being, but three eternally distinct persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God, one being, three persons. This means that Jesus is one of the members of the Trinity. We call Him the second person of the Trinity. He's God the Son. And for you to believe the truth about God, you have to believe the truth about Christ. If you get Christ right, you say, you know what, Jesus is God the Son. He's the second person of the Trinity. You get God right. If you get Christ wrong, you get God wrong. It is a package deal. I had a Muslim guy tell me one time, you know, we have the same God, man. We have the same God. We, we just differ when it comes to Christ, but we have the same God. And then I said, do you believe that Jesus is God? And he said, no. I said, we don't have the same God then. Any God that isn't Christ is no God. It's an idol. 1 John chapter 5, John says, Christ is the true God in eternal life. Guard yourselves from idols. Any God that isn't the triune God of the Bible, which includes the second person of the Trinity, the Jesus Christ, God the Son, is no God at all. And the idea today is we can just ecumenism, right? We all get together, hold hands, sing kumbaya. We all have the same God. We're all climbing the same mountain anyway. That is a lie from the pit of hell. There's one God. He's revealed Himself in Christ. And to reject Christ is to reject God. This is because Jesus says in John 10.30, what does He say? I and the Father are what? One. one. I and the Father are one. In John 5.23, Jesus said, All must honor the Son even as they honor the Father. You must honor Christ as God because that's who He is. He must be honored as God. Warren Wiersbe put it this way, You cannot separate the Father from the Son, since both are one God. Then he added, If you say you worship one God, but leave Jesus Christ out of your worship, you're not worshiping as a true Christian. If the God you worship isn't Jesus, if you're not worshiping God through Jesus, that's not Christian. That's paganism. That's idolatry. That's blasphemy. It is abhorrent to God, and it is not acceptable by Him. What does Jesus say in John 14.6? I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes what? Except by me. Right? There's only one way to God. It is through the Lord Jesus Christ. If you reject Him, you do not have God. So that's the first reason then to abide in Christ. Because if you do, you have God. You have both the Father and the Son. But there's a second reason here. 
for us to abide in Christ. We see it in verse 25. Look at verse 25. This is the promise which He Himself made to us, eternal life. Eternal life. The word promise there, it's a legal term in ancient Greek. It's a sanctioned promise, a sworn oath. Uh, it was a promise made to, to assure us of the certainty of it, of the sureness of it. Of course, God's promises are always certain. They're always sure because God is true. God is truth itself. God cannot lie. All of His promises are sure and trustworthy. And what is this promise that He's made to us? Eternal life. God has promised to you, if you are a Christian, eternal life. Now what is that? We hear that term and often we think, oh, that means to live forever. It means to live forever. But it's a little more than that, a little more nuanced than that. Because what about the wicked? Do the wicked live on consciously forever? No. The Bible says they do, right? They're tormented day and night forever and ever. No. They're going to be weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth. So they're conscious. The, live forever. <laughs> the wicked are conscious in hell. They're, they're weeping. They're wailing. They can do things that only conscious people can do. They're consciously and even physically alive. They're resurrected. They get new bodies to be cast into eternal hell. So the wicked consciously live on forever. So eternal life then has to be more about a quality of life than it is a quantity of life. It's more about the kind of life than the duration of life. It's more about uh, the, the type of life than it is the length of that life. Eternal life is spiritual life that lasts forever. It's spiritual life. You see, when we talk about death, there are really three kinds of death we could talk about. There's physical death. To be dead physically is to be separated from the body and the material world. There is spiritual death. The Bible says that all of us naturally are dead in our trespasses and sins, spiritually dead. That is to say we're separated from God. And then there is eternal death. That's eternal separation from God and His grace and His love and eternal subjugation to His wrath and hell forever. But then when we come to life, there's physical life, spiritual life, and eternal life. You see, you can be alive physically while being dead spiritually. We talk about the walking dead and... In reality, we see it every day. Every day we see people walking around who are dead in their sin. So you can be alive physically and be dead spiritually. To be alive spiritually is to have the life of God within your soul. It is to be in fellowship with God who is life. If God is life, to be out of fellowship with Him is to be dead. To be in fellowship with Him is to be alive. So, so eternal life then... Is life in communion with God. Let me try to show you this. In Ephesians 4.18, as Paul is describing the ungodly, he says this. He says they are excluded from the life of God. They are alienated from, separated from, the life of God. Jude describes them this way in his letter in verse 19. He says they are devoid of the Spirit. Devoid of the Spirit. To be an unbeliever is to be alienated from the life of God. It is to be devoid of the Spirit of God. It is to have no life spiritually. It is to be spiritually dead. And we know what Jesus said in John 17.3, right? Jesus said, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So eternal life is to know God through Christ. Eternal life is to be in a saving relationship with God 
through Jesus Christ. So, if you're a believer then, when does eternal life begin for you? Does eternal life begin when we die? No. Does it begin in heaven? No. When does it begin? Right now. If you're a Christian, you know God in Christ, you already possess eternal life. Isn't that amazing? You already have it. You have a life that is unlike any other. You have the life of God in your soul, the Spirit of God in your heart, you're in fellowship with God who is light, and therefore you at this very moment have eternal life. What a magnificent reality. Of course, we haven't received the fullness of that life yet, right? When that awaits the end, when we enter into the new heavens and the new earth with new glorified bodies and reign forever with Christ in eternal glory. But we do, at the present time, have eternal life. So why should we abide in Christ? Because this is the promise that is extended to you. If you are in Christ and you continue in Christ, you have eternal life now and you're going to enter into the fullness of that life hereafter in the world to come. That's why you should continue in Christ. The the opposite then is that if you do not continue in Christ, if you leave Christ, if you defect from Christ, you do not have eternal life. And you will not enter into life in the world to come. In Mark 13, Jesus said, He who endures to the end, He will be saved. He will be saved. John 8.31, Jesus said, If you continue in My Word, then you are truly disciples of Mine. How do we know we're disciples? We continue. We abide. We follow Christ until the end. Those who defect from Him do not have eternal life. Is that a good motivation? It's not like Jesus is saying, follow me, you get difficulties now, and then ah, nothing later. It's not like many of the world's religions where you kind of do good works and you just hope at the end your good outweighs your bad. You really don't know. I mean, if you ask a Roman Catholic where he's going to go when he dies, he doesn't know. Probably purgatory, who knows? As a Christian, we can have confidence that we have eternal life if we simply continue in the truth about Jesus. What a promise. Where does God make this promise? This promise of eternal life. He makes it in the Gospel. In the Scripture. What does John 3.16 say? For God so loved the... He gave His only begotten Son so that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have what? Everlasting life. There's the promise. A promise of eternal life. In John 6.47, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. That's the magnificent promise of the Gospel. If you believe in Christ, you have eternal life. Simon Peter knew that. He knew what a promise this was. In John 6, it says, Many of Jesus' disciples were walking with Him no more. A multitude of people left Him. And then Jesus said, Simon Peter, you don't want to go away also, do you? What did Peter say? Never, Lord. No. Where else shall I go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Why would you leave Christ? Why would you defect Christ to go to the world or go to the deception of false teachers? They have nothing to offer you. Christ offers you everlasting life. One writer put it this way, I've given up all for Christ and what have I found in it? Everything. Everything. Life everlasting. And those who really do believe in Christ and really do have this life, they demonstrate that by abiding in Him. So God has promised us 
eternal life. When did he first make that promise? Did he just make it in the New Testament? Well, we can go to the Old Testament, can't we? Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, we read this. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Right there in Daniel, there's a promise in the Old Testament of resurrection to everlasting life. But it even goes beyond that, right? Even further back. Titus chapter 1, verse 2 says this, In the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. Literally in the Greek, before time eternal. God promised eternal life before time eternal, before the world began. Or to borrow the language of Ephesians 1, before the foundation of the world. Now who in the world did God promise this eternal life to? Did He promise it to us? To His people. Were we there before the foundation of the world? So who's God making this promise to? No, we wasn't there. It can't be merely us. We're not even there, right? <laughs> He's making it to Christ. He's making this promise to Christ and then those in Christ representatively. The promise is made to us in Christ as our covenant and federal head. Theologians call this the covenant of grace. Covenant of grace. Before the world ever began, in eternity past, within the council of the Trinity, the Father says to the Son, if you go into the world and you die for the elect, I will give them eternal life. He promises that to the Son. Jesus comes, dies for those whom the Father had given to Him, John 6 says, and therefore He gives eternal life to them. So this promise was made to you representatively in Christ before the world ever began. You are a love gift, an eternal love gift from the Father to the Son for His glory. Isn't that amazing? Talk about Christmas gifts. doesn't get any better than that, does it? God giving you to Christ before the foundation of the world for His glory. And it is the work of Christ on the cross that purchases that salvation for us. So this promise is eternal. Titus 3.7 says, being justified by His grace, we are made heirs of eternal life. What does Romans 6.23 say? The wages of sin is what? Death. Death. But what is the free gift of God through Jesus Christ our Lord? Eternal life. Eternal life. Eternal death for the wicked. Eternal life for the people of God. What a promise. Acts 13.48 says, you were appointed to eternal life before the world began. All who are appointed to eternal life believe. God appointed you for that from everlasting in time. You believe in Christ and by faith you receive that promise and gift of eternal life. Now how do we respond to that promise? How do we respond to that promise? Jude gives us the answer. Jude verse 21 says, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. That's our response. We keep ourselves in the love of God. We continue in Christ. We abide in Christ. And those who do reveal that they have life and see the fullness of it in the end. So that's the motive. If you need a motive today to continue to be a Christian, or perhaps you need a motive today to become a Christian, this is it. God has promised to you eternal life. And that promise is only found in Him. Only in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we must abide in Christ. We must continue in Him. Because 
If we abide in Him, we have God. And if we abide in Him, we have eternal life. Of course, for those who reject Christ, there's no life. For those who are against Him, those who defect from Him, there is no eternal life. All that remains for the unbeliever is eternal death. All that remains for the unbeliever is the wrath of God that is to come. Let me close by reading a passage to you that expresses the fullness of this eternal life in contrast with eternal death. Look at Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. I want to read verses 1 through 8 to you. Revelation chapter 21, starting in verse 1. John, the same one who wrote 1 John, by the way, wrote the book of Revelation. And this is what he writes at the very end. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain, the first things have passed away. And He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new, And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cause. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. That is what awaits you as a believer. That is the full expression of eternal life. There will be no more crying, no more sickness, no more pain, no more death. No more coronavirus. We're praising God for that, right? No COVID-19 restrictions in eternal glory. We look forward to that perhaps the most right now. But that's the promise, brothers and sisters. That's what God has stored up for those who love Him. But what about for those who don't? What about for those who reject Christ? What about for those who do not continue in Christ? Look at verse 8. But for the cowardly and unbelieving, those who don't believe, those who defect from the faith, those who are not Christians, those who do not belong to Christ, and abominable, and murderers, and immoral persons, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. What a contrast. Those who believe have eternal life. Those who reject Him have eternal death. Friends, which one are you today? Do you believe in Christ? I do. Do you believe in the biblical Jesus? Are you holding fast to Him? Continuing in Him? Yep. If so, you have life. But if not, my plea to you today is that you would come to Christ. That you would repent, call upon the name of the Lord, and you shall be saved. Saved from everlasting destruction. Saved from the wrath that is to come. Because Jesus is the one who bore that wrath for us on the cross and gives eternal life to all of those who are in Him. So today, friends, if you're not in Christ, come to Him, and you'll find Him to be a perfect Savior. And if you are in Christ, take heart to that promise that all who believe in Him have eternal life. 
There are a few more aspects about this abiding that John lays out for us in the text, but uh, for the sake of brevity, we'll consider those next time. But for now, brothers and sisters, may we abide in Christ because we have that great promise of life eternal. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for all of Your precious and magnificent promises that You've made to us. You've promised us eternal life. You've promised us the Spirit who has come into our hearts. All of Your other promises have been fulfilled. All of Your other promises have come to pass. You've been faithful in all of Your promises. We have a good reason to trust that this promise will come to pass, that we will indeed enter into the fullness of life hereafter. Lord, none of Your promises have ever failed us. You promised to send a Savior in the Old Testament, and You did exactly what You promised. Christ came as it was written of Him. He suffered, He died, He rose again. You promised the Spirit, He came. You promised us forgiveness of sins. You've given it to us. You've promised us that You'll build Your church. The gates of Hades will not come against it. Your church is still being built 2,000 years later. No persecutor, no opposition, no virus, no world force can stop the growth of the church of God. You've promised all these things and You're fulfilling all of them to perfection. And so, Lord, we know we can trust this promise that we will indeed enter into the fullness of life. And I pray that that is a great motivation for us to abide in Christ now as believers. And I pray that's a great motivation for anyone here today who's not a Christian, who is not a believer, who fails the test, who has rejected Christ, that they would be motivated to run to Him by faith, behold His glory, and find salvation in Him. So Lord, thank You for this time together, this time in Your Word. May we live our lives for Your glory. Amen.